0: Assalamu wa rahmatullahi barakatuh My dear brothers, sisters, friends and the foals out there And welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Didi Hussein. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to remind all the avid podcast listeners That you can find this show on all the major platforms If you're tuning in and watching via YouTube, don't be cheeky Click subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel Today's guest is joining us for the second time, but the first time in person I'm truly honored to have him on. He, in recent months and years, has amassed hundreds and thousands of views across various platforms for his commentary on the Middle East and North Africa in the English language. He is also the founder and the chief editor of the International Interest uh, News. And that's none other than my dear brother, Sami Hamdi. Assalamu alaikum.
1: Thank you for having me then.
0: Sami, honestly. Uh, to see you in person because our last episode <laughs> was fire and it was virtual. But alhamdulillah, <laughs> it's good to have you in person. Alhamdulillah, it's good. To
1: thank you for having me here. It's great to sit with you in person as well.
0: And I also know you've just recently done a podcast on the Thinking Muslim podcast with brother Jalal.
1: Mashallah, you're plugging him here as yeah, well. Of course, <laughs> no. If we, don't work,
0: if we don't work together, then what do we
1: do? No, I it's true. Right? Alhamdulillah. So,
0: um, uh, I'm gonna have to mix it up a little bit in today's episode, but there's some serious stuff to talk about. Inshallah. As we speak right now, Gaza is being uh, bombed. Um, The Israelis are getting ready for a ground invasion. Uh, On some telegram groups, I've seen that the death toll update for the Palestinians in Gaza is 1,390. May Allah accept them as The situation is bad and Muslims uh, are feeling very alone at this time. We've got new laws coming in, talking about banning the flag, banning chants. We've got all cross-party support from Keistama, to Sunak, to Braverman. A lot is happening and it feels a bit different to any previous times. Why is that?
1: Barfik for having me. I think that it feels different this time, not because of the bleak picture that you've painted. It feels different this time because it's unprecedented. This is the first time that the Palestinians have ever been able to take land back from the Israeli occupation. Some people will say, look at 1973. But in 1973 the Egyptians broke the Israeli line in Sinai, and the Assyrians broke the Israeli line near the Golan Heights. Right. They didn't penetrate Israel proper. This is the first time that the Palestinians since 1948 have taken back land from the Israeli occupier, and even if they don't keep that land, it's serious enough for Netanyahu to declare war for the first time since 1973. That's why there is this reaction that has taken place. This reaction has taken place because for the first time since 1948, the Palestinians at a time in which it was believed that their cause was dying. Remember, like picture it. Netanyahu last week was at the last week from the time of this recording was standing in the United Nations holding up map. a map that erased Palestine completely from it. Yeah. And and in the same breath, was celebrating what he called the greatest deal since the end of the Cold War, that is the normalization of Saudi Arabia. The Israeli ambassador to the UN was asked by Cannes Television at the United Nations, they said to him, will your far right, will the government agree to normalization of ties with Saudi Arabia? And he said, when they realize that normalization with Saudi Arabia means the complete Arab abandonment of the Palestinians, they will know what to sign. The reason that this feels different, as you stated, is not because of the bleak picture that you've painted, but because the Palestinians, when everybody thought their cause was dying, when everybody thought they were down and out, when everybody thought it was the last embers of their ability to resist, have managed to cause this explosive counterattack without the support or the international support that we would have expected from the Muslim nations or the like. And that's why Israel is reeling. That's why- Iran to some extent, but one thing that I will say is the reason that Suela Brotherman is talking about these laws, the reason why in Montreal and in these other, and, and in the Americas as well, you'll see the New York Times article, Palestine pro-Palestine protest on one side, pro-Israel protest on the other side. The reason why is because public opinion can feel how unprecedented the euphoria that is spreading, particularly amongst the Muslim world, which, which was painting, which, was, which believed that things were dying. Suddenly it's like, oh my God, this cause is alive. And that's why there's a very brutal backlash from, and I finish on the sentence, very brutal backlash from the Israelis because they're not pounding Gaza. They're pounding the spirit that has suddenly come alive as the Palestinians have demonstrated that they have agency independent of Saudi and the rest.
0: The streets of Dhaka and Silet, from Islamabad to Karachi to Uttar Pradesh, to Istanbul, to Sudan, to Yemen. Muslims across the Muslim majority world have taken to the streets to show their support for, let's be frank about this, Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. This feels like a civilizational interpretation of events. Let's be mindful of what can and cannot be said within the law of the UK. This must be important, this must be stated from the very onset but rather what we are assessing is what we're observing in the Muslim world. And what we saw in the Muslim world is rejoicing, celebrations, solidarity, du'a. But here the, the exact same event outside of the Muslim majority world, and we can broadly say the global south, is that this was one of the greatest, and no, no the most heinous terrorist incidents has happened in Israel's history. So how do we reconcile such a polarized interpretation of what happened the saturday that's just gone past
1: let's put ourselves in netanyahu's position netanyahu was convinced that when he when he went to the united nations rajab Tayyip erdogan the sultan of the muslim world as he's often touted came and sat with him and said to him yeah netanyahu i want to build a pipeline i'm terrified that this middle east corridor that's been announced at the g20 between the uae india and saudi arabia is going to bypass me and it's more valuable for you to do it through turkey come let's talk about this and let's talk about a gas joint gas pipeline through the mediterranean and we together can be the corridor through which Europe is connected to Asia. Netanyahu believed that Bin Salman, according to the Reuters exclusive, told the Americans that the Palestinian cause is not of particular importance to me. Give me the NATO-style security agreement, give me the nuclear technology, and I'm willing to set aside the Palestinian cause. And it was interesting that the White House statement after the Reuters report was that the normalization would help to keep alive talks of the two-state solution, changing from the idea that two-state solution was part of that particular deal. I think that for the Israel. Israelis, the Israelis are trying to push a narrative that this is Hamas which has launched this attack. Because if they say it's Hamas and not the eight or nine other Palestinian factions, then they can argue that it's a terrorist attack. Mustafa Barghouti is from the PA, he's not part of Hamas, he is defending this resistance that has taken place. Hossein Zumlot is the ambassador of the Palestinian Authority, which clashes with Hamas, he's the one going on the media telling them, guys, this is the resistance as a result of occupation oppression. Muhammad al-Kurd is not part of Hamas, he is in Jerusalem and he is also defending on the CNN and the like, defending this Palestinian resistance and highlighting it's because of the occupation. The reason that everybody is focused on Hamas, even though Hamas might have a, or has a role in it, is because they're trying to ignore the nine, ten different factions that are also fighting and the people on the ground yeah, because not that are not prescribed groups, that are not terrorists in order to paint it as terrorism. And the point about Iran, you mentioned Iran. The reason Israel is pushing Iran, the reason why the Iranians have denied that they gave a green light, they denied that they knew the details of the operation. The reason that the Israelis are pushing the narrative that Iran has supported them is because the alternative is even more terrifying for Israel. It is easier to say that the Palestinians have no power unless Iranians support them. That's easier to say than to admit that the Palestinians have agency, that they have power Delhi, that the people who desire freedom have the power to be able to force Washington, UK, Riyadh, Abu Dhabi, Ankara, all these capitals around the world to change their policy, change change their position, change their tune. What Israel is terrified of is that people will realize it's not just Hamas that launched this. What Israel is terrified is that people will know that it wasn't Iran in and of itself that supported. Hezbollah hasn't got involved yet. The other Iranian factions haven't got involved yet. There seems to be a sense of if Israel doesn't go far enough, then we're happy to stay as we are at this moment in time. That's why you mentioned the point about Hamas, but I want to stress to all of the viewers exactly what Mustafa Barghouti has been stressing, who is not Hamas, exactly what Uh, Hossam Zulman has been stressing, this is a Palestinian lashing out against the occupation. And the reason Israel is so vicious in the narrative is because it's losing that narrative, because people are now seeing the human side of the Palestinians. And that's why there is this hysteria to call it Hamas versus Israel, instead of the Palestinians versus Israel. That's why I reject the premise about the idea that this is Hamas, even though they might be part of it. And I reject the premise that Iran is the primary driving force behind the Palestinians. this is Palestinian agency and the Israelis are desperate before they launch the grand invasion. They're desperate to tell the world that somehow 40 babies were beheaded by people who look like ISIS, even though they're backtracking on this news, because that in itself shows that the Israelis are now making up lies because what they're terrified of is not necessarily that they can't defeat the Palestinians. They're terrified that the ordinary Tom, Dick and Harry is now going on social media and the monopoly on the narrative that Israel had, where they told them the world, these were beasts and animals. Failing. People are now seeing the human side of it, oh. so that's why when we talk about Hamas and Iran, we should be wary. I think it's far more in Israel's interest to assert this than it is in the interest of the Palestinians.
0: Is there, before we move on, because I don't want to stay too much on this point, because you're absolutely correct. Sometimes when I ask, I'm asking to play the advocate of the other side, but would it be dishonesty to say that there was absolutely no Iranian involvement, even from the perspective of weaponry?
1: I think that one of the reasons why we should put the Iranian participation within a certain framework is because to say that Iran had the major role here With is some of gl- the
0: groups they thank it Iran. Wrong.
1: They are thanking they Iran. Thank Iran. They are thanking Iran. And Iran has provided logistical support. They've helped them with military training. They've helped them with the development of weapons. Yes, Iran has supported them in this regard.
0: Se- senior Hamas leader posted something on social media. I'm sure it was on Twitter or on Instagram. He was slating Bahrain and he's
1: praising Iran. 100% and Haniyah went to Iran when Qasim Suleimani, when the notorious Qasim Soleimani yes. was killed. He went Then he declared Qasim Soleimani shaheed yes. al-Quds. Yes. He declared shaheed al-Quds. However, having said that, the Iranians have certainly played a major support in supporting. But to say that Iran... Is the reason why the Palestinians have been able to mount this offensive? No, is, Habibi, but did they have even some contribution? They this? had some contribution and they've always had some contribution, and we've seen it in the way Hezbollah has got involved in wars before. Okay. But I would argue that when we talk about the history of the ANC in South Africa, mm-hmm. we mention Cuba and Libya in passing, that Cuba and Libya provided support, but we mention it not as a footnote, but not as a major thing either. And I think Iran should be seen in the same context as Cuba and Libya in their support for the ANC. Okay. We provided them with some of what they need, not Not everything that they needed, because we'll remember there was a clash between some of the Hamas officials and Iran. There was a leaked phone conversation that suggested that Hamas said, Iran exaggerates in terms of the uh, support that it gives us. Because it works in their favor. Because it works in In their their favor." favor. However, having said that, I will not deny that Iran has a role in it, but I also think it's significant as well, that the IDF is also denying direct Iran involvement. And the Americans are also denying direct involvement. And I think there's one of two reasons why they would do that. The first is that they believe that Iran doesn't have a major role in it and therefore there's no point calling out Iran. Or the second reason could be Iran does have a major role in it, but the Americans and Israelis are very keen not to make it go into a regional conflict. Having said that, because I've seen sometimes criticism, people say you underplay the role of Iran. It's not that I'm underplaying the role of Iran. It's that ultimately the fighting that is taking place is by Palestinians. The construction of the weapons is by Palestinians. The Iranians are providing a support and logistical support, but the support is never the main protagonist or the main actor. Iran deserves credit in the way that it has supported the Palestinians and helped them with their capabilities. But that should not underplay, and this is why the point I'm making, that should not undermine or underplay the extent to which a people who are increasingly being abandoned by the very brothers who are supposed to restore them to glory or help them to support them, the Palestinians have defied the odds. And that's why Netanyahu is humiliated and in hysteria to desperately try to, in his opinion, rectify the narrative.
0: So why is this civilizational divide? Why is there such a clear divide with regards to how this event is being interpreted? Why are Muslims celebrating fireworks, takbirat, and all sorts, giving sadaqah and everything they can? We're seeing it. you seeing it? I'm seeing it as well. Uh, just, I came into the building today, got into the uh, lift on the third or fourth floor, two Turkish brothers, clean shaven, came in. On the next floor, a young Somali brother in a thawb. As I got off, the brother said, victory for Palestine Gaza. Everyone said, "Amin." Why is there such a complete binary interpretation of this event? Let's Because, go ye- because of the Westerner, they're seeing it as these Muslims are celebrating terrorism against Israel. And the Muslims are seeing it as these people will always defend the occupier. I'm sorry to be so kind of uh, Samuel Huntington type, of, the, but this is what it is. Hmm. I mean, yes, I'm not saying there aren't people in the middle ground. I'm not saying there aren't people sitting on the fence and they're trying to have reasoned discussions but the thing is the disparity of the crimes of a brutal nearly 100 year, the, se- the occupation is 75 years but the, the, the terrorism has been 100 years, to compare that to what the Palestinians have been doing is quite frankly, uh, it's incomparable. Why is there such a divide in how people are interpreting this, this event?
1: Let me expand on your question. Why is it that Lindsey Graham, the Republican Senator comes out and says, this is a religious war. Why is it that the senators are coming out saying full support for Israel? John Kirby, the uh, advisor in the White House is crying on TV at the deaths of the Israelis, but never cried for the deaths of the Palestinians. I think that there was a, we'll start with a rather humorous tweet, there, a semi-humorous tweet. There was Mohamed Diya Hamami, he's a Tunisian uh, expert on, on Twitter and the like. I recommend people to follow him when it comes to to uh, Tunisian politics, and he put a tweet and he said, look, UK, US, France, Italy, and Germany issued a joint statement in support of Israel. And he said, note, three of the most brutal colonial empires of the past hundred years, and two of who have the the worst history of fascism in the past hundred years are now standing with the occupation, the colonization. And another tweet suggested it's a muscle reflex. These people still long for colonization, and their muscle reflex is that they recognize colonization and there's an affinity for it. There's no country in the world in which these powers gave the Freedom for these countries. My maternal side, I come from an Algerian background. It was a brutal war for liberation, and the French had to be kicked out. And they were so sad that they left because they considered Algeria as France proper. They considered it as part of France. I think that when it comes to the support for the Israelis, I think there are two points worth noting. The first is that one of the reasons why and, and I want to reframe your question slightly. One of the reasons why the media are in a panic over the coverage of this particular escalation or call it what you will, is that for the first time, there is an unprecedented array of eloquent Palestinians who speak English, who were brought onto the likes of BBC and CNN and the like, and expected to condemn themselves and expected to be the sanitized version of Palestinians that many people have been accustomed to seeing on TV. Instead, you had you Husam had Zumlot a video go viral of him responding to the presenter. How many S- times have you asked? How them? many times have you asked? But this viral video wasn't limited to the Muslim community. It went out to the non-Muslim community. You had ordinary neutrals turning around and saying, you know what, he has a point. Mustafa Barghouti had an excellent interview with Farid Zakaria, who mentioned about the terrorism and the like, and he turns on and he says, I haven't seen any terrorism. I've seen that resistance that are pushing back against the occupier or the like, in a very eloquent English, in a way that makes the neutral suddenly say, hang on a second, something here is changing or the like. The reason why I mention this is to show that it is true that it appears that the civilizational divide, but I actually argue that there's a minority faction that has monopolized the narrative, that is losing its monopoly on the narrative and the people who were put to sleep by the monopoly narrative, who were put to sleep and told and fed the lies and information, are suddenly waking up and going, hang on a second, have I been fed a lie? There was a viral video, Dilly, you might remember it, in the beginning or the first few hours of a Jewish woman, and she's terrified, and there are Palestinian fighters around yes, her, yes. and the Palestinian fighters say, Usturuha, usturuha. Yes, yes. Cover say her, cover her, cover her, cover her and it went viral. I, I, I'll be honest, like, I, I only have about 45k followers on Twitter or the like, but I've never reached 1 million views of a tweet in the space of a couple of hours. It went viral. And on Another person's page, it got to 8 million. Another person, it went viral because people were suddenly saying, hang on a second, for 70 years, we've been told these people are animals and beasts, but clearly they're not. There was that woman on channel 12. Yes, she where came she, in. They came in, she goes, they asked me for a banana. Yes. And he said, I'm Muslim, I won't harm you. I'm not saying that war doesn't see atrocities. I'm saying that these videos were suddenly showed. So if you imagine a minority are trying to control the opinion of the majority and the reason why I'm trying to move away from the civilizational clash, the ones talking about the civilizational clash are the ones who realize they're losing their grip on the the monopoly. The ones who realize that 56% of Israelis in a poll that was released today are demanding Netanyahu's resignation. That more than 70% of Israelis in the latest poll blame Netanyahu for bringing about the greatest calamity to Israel instead of the Palestinians. The idea being that if you're Netanyahu and the wave is going against you, if you're the US and Blinken in particular, who has this ferocious un, uh, unwavering support for Israel, if you see that momentum going against you, then you want to create the civilizational divide because what you're terrified of is that the, the Palestinians are now convincing people on the other side that they're, they're they're just. So when you push the civilizational argument as they're trying to push in this idea of a religious war, What it's doing is saying, okay, you might be sympathizing with the Palestinians, you might be sympathizing with their cause, but they hate you. It's a civilizational war. It's a religious war. And that's why I think that the Muslim... Why, Why is that narrative problematic, though?
0: When for the Muslim, it is to do with the occupied, occupation of Muslim land, occupation of land which is blessed in our source text, it is the location of the first Qibla, it's Masjid al-Aqsa, great leaders whom we celebrate and romanticize and write about and make dua for people out to come. They too made this a civilizational struggle. So what is the problem with that? From, on, from an Islamic Muslim perspective, not not the case that... As Muslims or as Palestinians, we appeal to the people of conscience of the other side. We seek allies who are on the side of justice and fairness and what's right. But ultimately, why it's sacred in the hearts of non Palestinians and non Arabs is because there's a significant religious. Uh, element to this
1: 100% and I agree with you entirely and I think that that question is, is different from the question that you asked me just before in that you know why are they trying to make it like a civilizational thing I think it is civilizational insofar as it is about a deep concern that Islam is spreading a deep concern that Islam is a sleeping giant a deep concern that no matter how much they yeah, batter Islam them, huh? Islam still gets still starts spreading people still believe in it one of the things that's worth remembering and I always say this to to, to Muslims who always argue that we have a bleak picture when the cartoons insulting the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam happened in France, and Macron defended it. Thousands came out in Bangladesh right. in support of Muhammad yeah. Thousands came out in Pakistan. Macron and the French were looking at each other in disbelief. Why are people thousands of miles away coming out over some cartoons that we drew in France and the like? Well, one of Imran Khan's uh,
0: biggest issues during his tenure was the uh, blowback. From the cartoons, wasn't it? From the it, from the Lebeque movement and stuff,
1: and, and all these things, and, and that's why I think that there's no problem in pushing the civilizational narrative. But the reason why I push back against it is because it's a it's a foreign it's a definition that's not within Islam itself. Islam defines itself in its own terms, and I think sometimes Muslims can be drawn into. I can I compare it to the debate between left and right. Should Muslims support the left wing or should they support the right wing? And there are many arguing that we should support neither left or right. We go based on our inch. Islam is strong enough to be able to stand. On its own and dictate things in its own terms. Islam, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, is not talking about a civilizational struggle. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala talks about justice, talks about the righteousness, and talks about the belief in Allah Subhanahu wa Taala as the most just being. When Allah says, "Believe in Me," Allah doesn't say, "Believe in Me" because I am Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. He says, "Believe in Me, the Most High, the Most Just, the Most Merciful, the Most Gracious, the Most Powerful, and all these other ninety-nine names of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala." Allah gives you a legitimate reason through which to believe in Him, and this is why I argue that Islam, when it argues legitimacy over Al Quds, it argue legitimacy over Al-Quds on the basis that Islam is the solution to resolve the problems of mankind. And, and to put it on this point, when people argue about civilizational uh, and the like, when you argue civilizational, you are presenting an idea of confrontation that in Islam, in the way that Islam treats other religions, doesn't exist. In uh, Let me put, make it clear, some people might think, but we have kuffar and the like, let me make a point. In Andalusia, for example, the most objectively greatest example of coexistence, it was Islamic law, which guaranteed Christians and Jews within their own. Communities to follow their own laws. Allah gave space within Islam for them to follow their own laws in certain degrees. The Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi
0: uh,
1: No, it came it through conquest. Be- but but what I, but what I'm saying is is that the the principle, the principle and the notion. Yeah. Of Islam in its assertion of its superiority is based on the
0: justice that is based
1: on the justice. And the reason why I link it to that is because that justice then appeals to the non Muslim who looks at that justice and says, This ideology puts justice at the heart of it. It doesn't put we prosper, it doesn't put civilization at the heart of it. And the proof is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not let. Umar al-Khattab was an Arab who liberated Al-Quds. But Allah gave the second honor to the Kurd, right. Salah din He gave the honor of Constantinople to a Turk, Muhammad al-Fatih. So. He gave the honor of uh, Andalusia to a Berber, uh, 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 Tariq yes. bin Musiyad. Yes. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did it because what Allah put at the center is not a civilization based on race or ethnicity, which is what civilizational confrontation implies. Right. Allah put at the center of it the very principle of justice, which is why Ibn Taymiyyah said that Allah preserves a just state, even if it doesn't believe in Allah, but cannot and does not allow Islam to exist with oppression. Allah does not allow an Islamic state to thrive. If oppression is rife in it because Allah does not tolerate Islam to be associated with oppression. The idea that Ibn Taymiyyah was arguing is that the essence of Islam is not separated from the justice. justice. It's, synonymous. it's synonymous. And the problem with the civilizational argument is you say Islam versus Christian world or the like, but in reality, it's not about Islam versus Christian world as much as it it's about justice versus oppression. And I think when you word it in this case, you can't say that justice versus oppression is a civilizational confrontation. No, it's a righteous confrontation. And I think that the consequences of the framework within which you present this conflict as one of civilization versus justice versus oppression, produce very different outcomes. One alienates and one threatens to push away those that can sympathize with you, while the other wins them over and makes them support you and even enter the Deen in Afwaja. When you ask reverts why they enter the Deen, they don't enter the Deen because they said Islam is uh, is 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 stronger in military might to the Christianity or like. They don't say that. They say I entered Islam. Islam. In the words of one brother, when uh, there was a brother called Benjamin, may Allah we say in Arabic, Allah khair, may Allah always give him khir. In mm-hmm. university, there is the ayah where Allah subhanahu wa taala, you know, says that when people are burnt in the hellfire, we put their skin back so that they might feel the punishment. And we read this ayah many times, mm-hmm. and and you know, we pass over it. So I said to him, Ben, how can an ayah of punishment make you turn to the deen? He said to me, you know what, Sammy? He talked. You know what, Sammy? I read the ayah and I thought. How does an illiterate man in the desert know that the nerves are in the skin, not in the blood? How does he know something we only discovered recently that you don't feel anything via blood. You can only feel it on the nerves that are in your skin. And if your skin is burnt, you lose all feeling. So how did he know that you have to restore the skin to feel the punishment in the first place? And he entered the deen for that. He enters the deen based on the principles that Islam argues, knowledge, uh, justice and the like. And that's what makes them believe that it's worth sacrificing their family ties, sacrificing their entire heritage and culture to fully embrace Islam. So to finish on this point, I know I've gone on in it. This this is why when people towards civilization I get it might make you feel powerful, but I think that the Muslim in terms of the framework of dawah, we should not present it as a civilization as much as we should present it as justice versus oppression. Islam is a people, we are a people of justice. Muslims are a people who support justice sure. wherever it is, Muslim and non-Muslim, and that's what made Islam great. When Ali ibn Abi Talib ta'ala anhu, is in a court against a Jewish man and the judge rules in favor of the Jewish man over Ali bin Abi Talib. And then he says to Ali bin Abi Talib, Ya Abul hasan you look upset at the judgment that I've given. And he says, Ali replies and he says, I'm not upset. At the, the judgment, I'm upset that you called me by Kunia and called him by his name. So you implied that you gave you me- respect and honor. You gave me respect and honor that you didn't give to the Jewish. That's what makes people turn to Islam. It's the idea that Islam guarantees justice for everybody. The message we're giving in Palestine is that one, yes, we are supporting it as an Islamic cause, but what makes it an Islamic cause? Is a cause we, of justice. It's the justice that we are looking and we are demanding Absolutely. 400%. So to answer your question directly in simple terms, and people please, for, for Forgive no, you
0: don't. Need to, but but uh, it's going to lead to yeah. this. Yeah. If the people of Palestine and their supporters are calling for the dismantling of the Zionist entity, how can that be the side of justice? You talk of justice as Muslims. You talk of the Islamic cause being synonymous with justice. How does that equate to calling for the end of Israel?
1: I think that the reality is that when it comes to Israel and Palestine, I think the reason why. Think about it this way. And and I had a conversation actually with with my father about this earlier in that notice how the Muslims are all united on the issue of Palestine. Mm -hmm. But more people have died in Sudan over the past, you know, couple of months than have died in in whatever. And and there's no unity on what's happening in Sudan. You look at Yemen, there's no unity on it. You look at Syria, there's no unity in it or the like. And I think the reason being is that Palestine in Israel is so clear cut that there is no room for disunity on the issue of Palestine. People came into a land, turfed another people off that land and they've been violently and brutally turfing them from that land. And that's why many people are able to sympathize with it. When people talk about the dismantling of the Zionist identity, the reason why it fits into the concept of justice is because the manner in which the Zionist entity was established is so abundantly clear and obvious to everybody that there is no way to different whatsoever. When people put the simple question and I like that somebody on the Piers Morgan show on, on Talk TV, there was a lady, uh, and and I regret that I forget her name, non-Muslim, and she gives the example of, I won't repeat the example, people, it's gone viral, many people have seen it, the idea of somebody going into the home home. and putting the owner of the home in the cellar, and then years later, the guy comes out of the cellar, you know, and he says, I'm gonna burn the house down. You don't turn to the man in the cellar and say he's the one. In other words, in every rationale, under every law in the earth, under every morality, you see that even you've interviewed Jews who are against the Zionists? I saw the episode. You've interviewed <laughs> them before. He's not inv- he's not inspired by Islam about it. He's inspired because according to his analysis of the situation, the Zionist entity came in as a brutal force that dispossessed people of their rights. And that's why I focused on the on the concept of justice and why it's just at the heart of what Islam is calling for, not to deny anything else in Islam, but to say this is at the heart. Ibn Khaldun said, "Al adlu Justice is the foundation of dominion. And oppression heralds the decline or, de- or demolition of the civilization. All the Muslim scholars that we respect, put justice at the heart of it, so, alongside Laila Muhammad So the point here being is that why, why this dismantling of the Zionist entity, the dismantling of the Zionist entity, Zionism argues for an ethnocentric state that dispossesses another people of their legitimate rights that are acknowledged by all the religions under the seven heavens and the earth. It's easy to see why it fits into the concept of justice. Those who say that it doesn't, are those perhaps in my opinion, they are the Europeans and the Americans, They are the Europeans who have this incredible guilt. Remember Dili, it's the Europeans that gassed the Jews, that slaughtered the Jews that persecuted the Jews, that kicked them out of the inquisition, that did the Warsaw ghetto uprising when they crushed Mm. it in Poland and the like. It was the Europeans that embarked on the worst massacres of the Jews, unjust massacres. They were mercilessly slaughtered by the Europeans. Even before Islam. Even before Islam. Even before Islam. The Holocaust was not done by the Muslims. It was not done by Africans. It was done by Europe. There's nothing that remotely compares to the Holocaust within Islamic history or even in the Muslim world. It does not exist. So the Europeans, I think a lot of it comes from this idea of Guilt. guilt guilt in terms of let like, we support the Jewish population out of good because we were so because horrible we to them because of what we did. So they're making other people pay the price for that. And the second thing is when you look at the US establishment, Blinken, for example, who has ancestry of and 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 I sympathize deeply with the Jews who have families who have been who were part of the Holocaust. But I compare him to Norman Finkelstein. Norman Finkelstein comes from a family that was in Auschwitz and the like and who was who suffered the Holocaust and he acknowledges injustice. Whereas you have Blinken in the US in a very senior position who absolutely rejects any idea of Palestinian rights or the like, because for him, he's ideologically so aligned with Israel. And in many ways, Dili, and I will show some sympathy for an unjust idea in the sense that the brutality and trauma of the Jewish population, I understand if a Jew says, you know what, yes, we've done so many crimes, we're terrified of retribution, so we're going to continue supporting Israel. And that's why I think that the onus is even more on the Muslims to emphasize that this is a battle for justice, not revenge. That this is a battle of justice that (laughs) Kick them out from where they drove you out and do not transgress beyond that. The Prophet Muhammad when he entered Mecca did not transgress against Quraysh. He took the rights back and told them those who stay in their homes are safe.
0: There was even a Sahabi who chanted a specific thing and he corrected him. He said, today is the day of revenge or vengeance said no, today is the day of mercy I believe
1: and 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 that's the thing the the idea being is that I understand if a Jewish settler and that's why the lady from Channel 12 that I mentioned earlier when she said he told me I am Muslim I will not harm you and she goes it took me by surprise because they weren't expecting that they weren't expecting they were expecting vengeance and the thing is you can understand why and that's why and this is going to be rather controversial to say
0: war is human as well it's a necessary human trait.
1: It, it's, it, it, and, and there's a lot of humanity that takes place in war. It's legitimate for the Jews to, or the Israelis, not the Jews, because there are many Jews against Zionism, for the Israelis to have that fear and concern. And that's why I think sometimes, even the Muslims themselves, Alhamdulillah that <laughs> our teacher is the Prophet Muhammad <laughs> no Alhamdulillah that our guidance comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not from them. And the reason they're terrified is because if they had power over us, they would do with us atrocities that Allah would never allow us to do for them. Absolutely. And that's why I think part of the debate, and I finish on this point, part of the debate should be the emphasis that what the Palestinians are demanding is not that the Jews should be kicked out of the land, but that their home should be restored to them. And then we can talk about coexistence because we Muslims already have a history of it. Yeah, but Habibi, there'd be no Jews left if all the land was given back to the rightful owners. But I think that sometimes when you look at... <laughs> for, but, but let, but let's, let, let's, Is that untrue? Let's, 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 let's take a scenario, for example. Yeah. The Muslims conquered Andalusia, but yeah. the Jews still found the land. The Jews still were able to buy property. Mm-hmm. The Jews were still able to have their synagogues. The Jews were able to operate. In fact, according to some statistics... I'm asking what some Jews will be no, thinking. No, I understand. That if we were to give you your land back, all of it
0: to his rightful owners, and if we were to be honest, that's 80 to 90 to 100%, where the hell do we stay?
1: But we look at Andalusia. Tarab Nuziad goes in and he takes Andalusia and a thriving Jewish community emerges that own their own land, that own their own property. Under Islamic history, where the Jews believe that they prospered the most under Islam as opposed to Christianity, yep. Islam guaranteed those rights and guaranteed those. those, those. And, and, and it's something that Islam imposes on us. The point here being is that even if the Palestinians got all their land back, it doesn't mean the Jews are kicked out. It means that Jews are afforded land. It means that they're giving homes. It means they become citizens within society. It means that they operate. And one of the things that's worth noting is that even left-wing Jews like Bernie Sanders, for example, and this is where I think it gets really dark in that Bernie Sanders was asked by Dina Takruri and and, and said, do you support a one state solution? Because this is what Palestinians are after. Palestinians are not after revenge. Palestinians are saying, let's all live together, but don't take my home and my land for you. Let's, Let's talk about a different social contract. And Bernie Sanders said, no, I'm against one state solution. Why? Because it means the end of Israel. What does he mean end of Israel? He means that the Palestinians will be the majority. And I think that ethno... Sanders, Sanders said that? Sanders, Bernie Sanders said it. An interview with Deena takruri It can be found. It's easily found on YouTube. When did he say this? He said this, I think, two years ago or three years ago. I remember when he did it because it broke my heart. Because I was part of that movement oh, of, wow. you know, feel the burn. You know, yeah, I loved too. his social feel justice the burn, yeah. I don't condemn him for it, but I can understand from the human side of things. He's concerned about being under the mercy of another people who might take revenge on a people who wronged them. I get it which is why I think that one of the most underrated aspects of Islam is how we deal with people after victory. صحيح. In that all the examples of Umar ibn Khattab عن, enters Jerusalem and the, and the priests tell him, you the prayer time has come pray here in the church, which he's allowed to do. And Umar al Khattab turns around and says, I will not pray in this church oh, for I'm... I fear people after me will come and say Umar, Umar prayed, prayed here yeah. and they will destroy your church. Umar al Khattab in the moment of victory after a bitter then. war it still has the foresight to say, I want to protect this community from overzealous Muslims who might come after me and use me as a hujja to oppress the people who once oppressed them. That's enough. Islam. And that's what I think people don't talk about enough. And that's why I think that sometimes Muslims are celebrating, going back to the original part of your question, in that Muslims are celebrating and the euphoria. The euphoria is not that Israelis are being killed. No, the euphoria is not that Jews are being of course killed. not. The euphoria is that, you <laughs> the just cause oh. is still alive and that's why i think that for every israeli or for every jew they will notice that when they support justice it's the muslims who celebrate them first it's the muslims who love them first and the reason being is that the muslim doesn't have a vendetta against the jew the muslim has a vendetta against the oppression and injustice and once that's resolved i promise you adili i'm not talking in theory i'm talking because yeah, I mean, in history the, it's the, been the, done there's
0: historical documentation for it i don't think we need to overdo this point it's in the books it's in their books but they need to believe it and i think that's why sometimes it's peop- in their books
1: and, and people and under- their people wrote about this undocumented this and that's why i think that sometimes you know sometimes you read the quran with a new not with a new lens but you read an a hundred times and hundred the first time it clicks with a new meaning when allah says those who call to is there any better speech than one who calls to allah that's good not just call to allah in the sense of believing allah but calls to allah through his actions because allah says and means that in these instances, you demonstrate the Islamic principle. In other words, after victory, you show that mercy that all the Sahaba tended to show. And when he does those good actions that I'm showing mercy and you're not here for revenge, Adam and I'm doing it because Muslim. I am a Muslim. Allah says, this is the, the goal. And that's why I think sometimes in this area, in itself is a lesson for us. And, and, and I'll finish on this point because it goes back to your original question about the civilizational thing in that people want to frame it in this way, but I want to frame it in the way Allah told me to frame it. I don't want to frame it as civilizational. I want to frame it as I'm going to do good and I'm going to show mercy and I'm going to call for justice. I'm going to fight for justice, but I'm going to call for mercy afterwards as well. Not because I think this is a civilizational fight, but because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told me to fight against oppression and not to transgress after I've won over oppression.
0: Going back to your operation uh, al Flood, uh, there's a lot of conversation about how did the Israeli intelligence uh, miss this? Was it a case of complacency? Was it an intelligence failure? Um, there's reports that the Egyptians uh, gave them a heads up saying that, look, expect an imminent attack. How was all of this done? Uh, how was such a formidable, at times described as an impenetrable uh, Israeli security system uh, allowed Operation al Flood to take
1: place? My job is... Uh- a a political risk consultant with clients or the like and 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 one of the 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 ways that sometimes we provide analysis is we put ourselves in the position of people we wouldn't want to put ourselves in the position in so let's imagine that i'm netanyahu and i'm going to drag you into the the way i drag muhammad and thinking muslim i'm going to drag you as well you you, you're going to be benny gantz you're going to be so we we are together so right now at this moment in time you've come and you've said to me that erdogan is making phone calls eager phone calls because he wants to have warmer ties and erdogan is no longer calling me a terrorist state he's no longer calling me hitler Mm. he's calling to about warmer he invited our president and he tried to invite me as well, Netanyahu, but I was in hospital with a heart problem. I couldn't go to visit, but I'm expected to go visit in November because Erdogan is really keen on warmer ties with me because he has issues with the Americans and he's toned down the issue of Palestine or the like. Mohammed bin Salman, I met him twice. I went to Saudi Arabia. I flew on a secret flight. I met with the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and he's more interested in Eze Egalia twerking in Riyadh than he is about the Palestinian cause. He wants Vision 2030. He wants to build Miami. He wants to build the like, and he's making peace all over the region in order to be able to really th- thrive and promote these raves and promote these Bikini beaches and the like as part of Vision 2030 and progress into the 21st century. Mohammed bin Zayed, no matter what I do, I attack Janine, I try to annex the West Bank. Bin Zayed always gives me a statement in my favor. He's always supporting me. Yusuf Al-Utayba, the UAE ambassador to the US is celebrating and saying, yeah, we might not have achieved anything for the Palestinians, but that's for the future states that will normalize. But let me tell you how amazing it is, how many flights now we have between Abu Dhabi and between Tel Aviv or the like. So you're coming and you're reporting all of this. And then the Egyptians suddenly give a phone call and they say, look, we think something's brewing. We think something's gonna happen in Palestine. I laugh at you. I'm going to say to you, what do you mean? Where's it going to come from? The Saudis are abandoning them. The Turks are not interested. We're having anymore. a great week. We're, we're having, having a great month. week. The Emiratis are not. I've just gone to the UN and I just held up a map and the Americans have celebrated it. Biden is talking about normalization. Did you see Bin Salman's Fox News interview? He's saying every day we're getting and closer, closer, and closer, closer and closer and closer. Uh, Francine Lacroix from Bloomberg. She asked Netanyahu in the, in the to break character for a bit. She asked Netanyahu in <laughs> an interview and, and said, and said to Netanyahu, do you, if you don't give concessions and she's very passionate when she's saying it, you know, I, I, I read her for it. But if you don't give concession to Palestinians, how can there be normalization with Saudi? And he looks at and smiles and he says, Francine, they're not talking about Palestine as much as you think they are, you know, it's, it's not, on the, it's not a major important thing on the table. And I think that one of the uh, and so going back to Netanyahu and the like, so all of these dynamics are here. And then the Egyptians give a call. Now with the Egyptians, just to sidestep here, it's unclear if the Egyptians said that Hamas or the Palestinians are going to launch an offensive within the next month, or if they said that your current trajectory is going to lead to an explosion in Palestine. The reason there's a distinction between the two is that the first is just treachery in that I have information and here's the information, and they're going to do something. And the second is something that everybody's saying openly, that you can't just, the King Abdullah of Jordan said it, you can't just fly over the Palestinians and make a deal. Eventually something's going to explode. It's like, a, I think- it was The latter? I think. I think both are equally possible. CC is one of those it where is because treachery isn't beyond. It's not beyond CC. I I, and I think it shows how low Egypt has gone in this in, in in the eyes of many people that it's possible that the first option is better. But we'll do Hassan Let's suppose is the second because that second approach would explain why Netanyahu ignored it. Because if the Egyptians had shown credibility- Which, which intent, would be complacency then. Which would be complacency. And that's the point I want to highlight here. If everybody is talking to me and saying, I want good ties, you convince the Palestinian cause is dying. You're on the cusp of the greatest deal since the Cold War, as Netanyahu said. Mm-hmm. So when you come through the door, but you come knock and you say, S- Netanyahu, Bibi, like they're, they're going to attack. Allah, where, where's the attack gonna mm-hmm. come from? Mm-hmm. Like even Iran is talking to the Saudis and they wanna tone things down in Syria. and They wanna tone things down. Mm-hmm. Where is it going to come? And that's why I go back to my point in the beginning, which is that what Netanyahu is in hysteria about is the Palestinian agency. They weren't supposed to be able to provide the greatest danger to Israel since 1948. How is it possible that at their weakest point internationally, they 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 posed the greatest threat that they've ever done? And that's why I think that the Egyptian part of it, or indeed, how did it happen? I think, and and this point is important, Dili, to, 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 to express the trauma of Muslims and the defeatism that has become embedded in Muslim minds has meant that even when they see something that looks like a victory, they still want to put a conspiracy theory to say, no, it must have been planned so that- Because it can't be possible. Because it can't be possible. How could we? But let me address this point. Now let's put ourselves in the White House. I'm Biden and you're- there's rumors in the Russians were involved. They, they, they even put, I, I don't understand the affection for Putin given what he's well, done yeah, in, in Syria or that everybody wants to tie him. I think Putin is-, is But you've heard this, yes? I've heard this as well, but I don't think it's true at all. But let's go into the White House now, for example. I'm Biden and you're blinking, for example. <laughs> and, and- This <laughs> guy, go ahead. And, and And Biden says, and, and Biden says, you know what? Bin Salman has told me that if I give him the NATO style security agreement and the nuclear, uh, a, a proliferation program, he's going to abandon the Palestinian states, we don't need to talk about it. And Blinken says, this is so exciting. We're on the cusp of it. Yes, if I take this to the elections, I'll be able to win the elections, the Americans will celebrate it. And Netanyahu says, you know what, we're on the cusp of it. And Bin Salman is saying, you know, we're getting closer every single day. Do you think that Biden is sitting with Netanyahu and saying, let's have an escalation in Palestine? Do you think he's sitting there and going, let's that, ruin it. That's the last thing they And want. make it harder for bin Salman to normalize ties. And one thing that's worth noting is that if you look at the Saudi statement, bin Salman, under bin Salman in recent times, Saudi has been omitting the word colonization and occupied to describe Israel. In some of the statements, so every now and then he'll put occupation whenever he feels under pressure and he removes it when he's not. But in some statements, he's even put al-Quaat al-Israeliyya. So he calls Israel by its name, but though he puts it between quotation marks. But it's certainly a level up from occupation and and whatever. On within four hours or five hours. We celebrated the recent statement. Within the first four, four, five hours, Saudi releases a statement blaming the occupation. The colonizer, which suggests that bin Salman buckled under public opinion. Many Muslims say, what can we do and do some public opinion and you're exaggerating. Bin Salman has no reason to call Israel a colonizer, given that the Israelis and the Americans are all on board with him and they said, the only reason he did it is because he's terrified of public opinion. This is in favor of Palestinians. It's the idea that he buckled. The next day, Blinken calls, Abdullah bin Zayed posts a tweet, saying, I've just had a bilateral talk with Blinken, the US Secretary of State. Two hours later, UAE releases a statement blaming the Palestinians for what's happening. But within 24 hours, Mohammed bin Zaid is the first to announce $20 million in aid to the Palestinians, suggesting that he's uncomfortable. He's buckling as well. And UAE commentators are going wild in their support for Palestine. Something that in a country like the UAE, you can't say what you want, when you want, like it's not. Which means that these commentators who are very aligned with the government are aware that they have a green light from above to be able to speak very freely about their support for Palestine, which suggests that the UAE doesn't want to be caught on the wrong side of public opinion. So,
0: So the Muslim public opinion, the Arab public opinion is still very much
1: on the side of the Palestinians. And bringing that back now to Biden, Biden was on the verge of normalization of ties with Saudi Arabia. When people are talking about it was all planned so Netanyahu could whatever, do you think Biden and Blinken, the last thing they wanted was the escalation? The last thing Netanyahu wanted was a fight with the Palestinians. When UAE were going to normalize ties, Netanyahu was on the verge of starting to annex the West Bank. Trump went to him and told him, Yeah, not yeah, but you idiot. You know, UAE are about to normalize. Make it easy for them. And Netanyahu, avoided raiding Jenin for about six, seven, eight months to allow space for in, UAE to normalize. Yeah, in
0: the hope for that to happen, yeah. So,
1: but the point here being is that Netanyahu acknowledges that to make it easier for the Arabs to normalize, I shouldn't escalate with the Palestinians. So if you're Biden, and to, and to find a point, to, to address this point that people think it's a conspiracy or whatever, I can't see how Biden or Blinken in any scenario believe that an escalation is in their favor or even Netanyahu believes that it's in his favor. And even now Netanyahu there are calls now for him to resign. So I, I think they genuinely caught them by surprise as they were caught surprise in 1973. And I think that this defeatism that is in the subconscious of the Muslim mind needs to be removed because the Palestinians have proven that it's not a good basis on which to analyze what's happening.
0: This is good because it kind of leads us onto our next conversation. And that is uh, the topic of um, Saudi normalization. Uh, with israel right this is something which uh, you comment on a lot um, you've been criticized quite heavily for it as well um, on our on the five pillars telegram group when we share your analysis you're known as sami the ikhwani so i want to ask you squarely um, are you a member subscriber affiliate activist da'i for the muslim
1: brotherhood I'm, I've never been associated with the Muslim Brotherhood and I'll tell you an anecdote because it it, it's been said publicly so I can say it. Yusuf Al rahimahullah, Ameen. was sitting with my father in, in Mecca in the Haram and my father started talking to Yusuf Al qaradawi and Yusuf Al qaradawi said to him, Ya Hashimi, let me tell it to you straight. As long as Ghanoushi is upset with you, I have no interest in anything that you have to say. It's been said that Ikhwan believe that when they like you, they carry you to the seven heavens and when they hate you, they consider you for As-Safilin. My relationship with Ikhwan has always been very checkered, to be honest. Ibrahim Munir, for example, who Allah ya rahmou, he died recently. Amen. He was the murshid of Ikhwan, the late murshid of Ikhwan. In 2013, my father, who owns Mustaqila television, wanted to do a show promoting Egypt after Mursi had won the elections to really emphasize, you know, this was a great revolution or the like. Ibrahim Munir, we spoke to him in the office and then he left and he went to Egypt for two weeks and he came back. When he came back, he said, we really don't want to upset Ganushi, So maybe it's better you don't come to Egypt when, for example, the Qataris, they uh, imprisoned Hazza bin Ali. They wanted to do an election to show that uh, you know, we are dem- democratic or the like but they did an election law, they didn't want the parliament to be powerful so they did an election law which stripped a third of the electorate of the right to vote and a lawyer miskeen, an ordinary citizen said, yeah Sumul Emir, why are you taking you know, our right to vote? And the Qatari sent 300 armed guards to his house, they arrested him, they put him in prison and then after the World Cup when everybody expected him to be pardoned, the Emir announced that he has a, a, a life, sentence life sentence now in prison and, and he has to stay there. And my father attacked them and everybody said this is an enemy and he's been paid off by the Saudis or the like. In fact, I'm more accused in public of being pro-Saudi, which is very ironic, then I am considered to be pro-Ikhwan. But I will say that, and this is one of the things is that- Is in the Arabic speaking? In the Arabic speaking world. Because the English speaking domain- The English speaking, so, 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 so to put it quite bluntly, and, and I don't want to kick a horse when it's down I know that Ikhwan are struggling. I think it's important to note that Ikhwan are a very important movement. They've achieved many things in the, in the political scene or the like, but I do want to dispel this rumor, or, or you've given me an opportunity to dispel it. I've never been part of Ikhwan, and I don't think Ikhwan would be happy to have me in any of their uh, circles either. I think we have a there's a pleasant relationship when I meet many of the Ikhwanis. They're very pleasant with me and they're very nice. You've sat with them before or the like. But I think on political front, and my father was involved in Tunisian politics for 10 years, you know, like you can find like Bahri Lasi, for example, a prominent Tunisian businessman. So one of the issues that we had in Tunisia was... How's your father's relationship with Muhammad Ali of Islam Channel? Muhammad well, Ali has been visitors for, I, I don't, it, it's, it's good, it's one of respect. But like, there's, there's no issues there whatsoever. I, I. But but one of the things that's worth noting is that, so when in, in 2011, my father's party came third in the elections, and you can find the video. So they tried to cancel the list. So they were upset that we caused this uh, an upset. We came third when nobody was talking about us. And we won Sidi Bouzir, the land of the revolution. Of course. We won three seats there. So what the other parties did was they got the election commission to cancel all of our seats. <sighs> and they celebrated and the journalists stood up, including Ikhwan, and they celebrated, and they sang the national anthem, believing it to be a great victory, that our votes, because we weren't part of the system, that they were all canceled. So Sidi Bouzid rioted and, the, and our supporters rioted and they burnt another's office, they burnt these other offices. And then the electoral commission called my father and he said to him, please tell them to stop, please. And they restored all of our seats except one of them. When they restored the seats, we suddenly found that our MPs were being bought by businessmen. So we can understand where this phenomenon was coming on. And then Bahri Jlasi, I don't know if it's true or not, but just to really highlight some of the tensions, Bahri Jlasi on Tunisian television comes out and they say to him, why did you buy some of Al-Hashemi's MPs? He said, Ghanoush, asked me to. Uh, and, and that's why I think that the relationship has always been checkered in, in 2014, for example, 2013, we called Ghanoushi and we asked him and we said to him, why don't, a lot of MPs will be in bought and sold. So we were, we, we were the ones mostly suffering from it and, the, and these other. We had an interest in getting this law passed where we said, because we have a list system in Tunisia, so you don't vote for an individual, you vote for a party. If somebody wants to change sides, they should resign their seat and there should be a by-election or the second person in the list should be able to take the place. So we said to Ghanoushi in, in a phone conversation that, look, let's. Uh, w- we're going to propose this law and we want another support to pass this law because it will undermine the whole democratic process, that MPs are being bought and sold. Ghanoushi said, I'm not going to force my party to do anything. And they abstained from the law. When in 2019, Qais Said is bearing down on them preparing for the coup, and Ghanoushi's allies are now being bought and sold, Ghanoushi tried to present this law again, to try to say that anybody who wants to change sides has to either resign their position or buy, but by. But by that time, medicine, yeah. he didn't have the support to do so. My point here being is that I get, and I understand why people might think I am Ikhwan. But one thing that I have learned as well, is even when you're judging other people now, when I see labels on other people, I think, look at all the labels that people attach to me. And you will know well all the labels people attach to you as well. And the stories that you find online about yourself, where you look and you think SubhanAllah, I see my wife sometimes, I say, he knows more about my life than I do. I, I can't even remember this, this scenario that, that took place. But I also think, and, and, I, and I will push back a bit. And I will say that sometimes, the accusation reflects more on the accuser than the accused. In that, when the accuser says that he's being paid by someone, it means that the accuser would only do it if he was paid. And he cannot fathom or understand an example of somebody who would be able to do it, even though he doesn't get paid. Because you think about it, and one of the things that it hurts sometimes, and, and not in a hurt, like I'm not too bothered about it on a day to day basis, but if I had to think about it deeply, the reason it hurts is because you think about it. I haven't been to Saudi Arabia in over a decade, and I don't know when in the future I will ever be able to go to Saudi again. No, no I don't to go to the UAE. I don't go to Cairo. I don't go to Abu Dhabi. Even Doha, I'm a bit, you know, I've never been to Doha before. And even then, Doha, I'm always a bit uncomfortable, you know, like let's, you know, because I know that there are tensions there as well. Most of the Arab states, as a result of being loud and sitting with people like you who get me in a mess and dig a hole for me, I think myself, Alhamdulillah, I'm in London and I go to Bosnia or the like. But the inability, for like on my Facebook, I hide every single person who posts a picture of the Kaaba. Every person who puts a video of them doing Umrah, I've got them on hide. I snooze them for 30 days. If they do, it again, I snooze, I'm not interested in you going to Umrah and showing it to me because it hurts, because you go there and you enjoy it or the like, while some of us can't go. And that's why sometimes the accusation, Muslim Brotherhood, I'm not. if I was Muslim Brotherhood, it's nothing to be ashamed of. If I was pro Imran Khan, it's nothing to be ashamed of. If I am pro whatever, it's nothing to be ashamed of, provided the position is based on something that is principle. And that's why I think the the principle in Islam that I think every brother needs to remember is that Ali bin Abi Talib anhu, said, men are determined based on whether they stand with the truth. The truth is not determined based on who's standing with it. So it's not like I look at Dilly and say, okay, Dilly is standing on this side, therefore, it must be right. No, I look at the truth. And then I judge Dilly based on whether he's standing on the truth or not. And that's why I think these labels, I think they're more lashing out In that okay, and the way I interpret it is and why I don't get too upset about it is that they're so upset the point was delivered. That they have to throw something and throw a label oh it must be إخواني. and some people say well does that hurt your standing or does it hurt, hurt your like but the way i see it is look alhamdulillah i look at where i am now compared to three four years ago and allah says you know العزة العزة he who seeks glory let them know all glory belongs to allah. allah if you're thinking about seeking the glory or rivaling allah doesn't accept any rivalry any glory And I'm aware and and you know, there's always this battle with the nafs and you know as well. But I'm also aware that people who like what I have to say do not like it because I'm saying it. They like it because their affinity for Islam is resonating with something I'm saying. In other words, the success is because I am trying to align myself with Allah as opposed to. So it's not me giving victory to Allah, Allah is giving me victory. victory. And I think that's a very important distinction, which is why I don't get too bothered with the labels. But I know why you've mentioned it. And if given the question was posed, nobody's ever posed the question to me. People tend to just let it and just assume that... I had to ask because
0: there was a recent uh, video uh, by a brother we won't mention, but he's got got a sizable following of late. Um, He done like an analysis on your first episode with Brother Jalal on the Thinking Muslim podcast on uh, Saudi normalization with Israel. And I'm going to pick up on some of his points of critique. It was quite a lengthy video. Do you know which one I'm talking about? I know which one you're talking about. Have you watched it? I haven't. Okay. <laughs> well, it's, it's got it's got a fair amount of views. Yeah. Um, and the brother who made the video also said that I think he's Ikhwani mm. Um. So let's 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 pick up on some of the points. Why have you made, in your public commentary, why have you made Mohammed bin Salman's twenty thirty vision, and equated it to, a reformation of Islam, a secular liberal reformation of Islam in Saudi Arabia, as opposed to him reforming Salafism, or an interpretation of Salafism.
1: May Allah forgive me for this analogy I'm going to use and may the Prophet ﷺ forgive me if I ever meet him in Jannah, may he forgive me for using this analogy, but Allah is my witness. I am only using this analogy in order to blow apart the insinuation that vision 2030 is a reformation of Islam. Let's imagine that the Muslims have arrived in Yathrib, they've arrived in Medina, and they've decided to build the Mosque. Astaghfirullah, may Allah forgive me. Mm Allahumma, I swear this is just to give the analogy for the example. The Sahaba have arrived in in, in, in Yathrib and they've built Masjid Quba. And they've all worked together and they're all celebrating, Alhamdulillah, the first Mosque of Islam. We're able to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We found a haven. May Allah... And his law always govern this land. May Allah always be supreme. May he be praised in this land. May the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu s- succeed Allah. in his mission. May he be blessed in land. And the, the, suddenly they finish building Masjid Quba. And the Prophet Muhammad S-S1 stands up and he says, this mosque is for those who want to pray and those who want to worship Allah. And I've brought belly dancers now in the other part of Medina. Those of you who ah, wish to go and to. enjoy the belly. You're reacting already. I haven't even finished the example. You're going
0: to get smashed in the comments.
1: You're you, uh, And he said, that I've, I've prepared belly dancers. <laughs> okay. And may Allah you. prepared belly dancers. For those of you who wish to go, this is my vision. 720 ad in order to build the economy so that i can become a strong nation because i need the belly dancers and i need the twerking and the like in order to become a strong nation so i can deliver the message of islam and preserve the haven of islam over here dilly you're looking at me so sh- you're looking at me like you're so disgusted but this is the i'm just rephrasing exactly what you said to me i'm rephrasing exactly what you said he to would me. Argue,
0: he, 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 would I, ar- he would argue that islam is already in the hearts re- of the people Exactly. Islam is already in the hearts and of the people. And it was in the
1: hearts of the Sahaba, it was the, uh, in the hearts of Aus, it was in the hearts of Khazarij. But the argument that was made, according to what people have told me about this particular video, and uh, to, to be fair, the brother has some excellent videos on, on a number of other topics. I'm of the opinion that Al perfection, perfection belongs to Allah there is no sweeping indictment on an individual and there is no sweeping praise of an individual. An individual makes mistakes, an individual says something that's good. For example, like I always argue, some of the brothers are excellent at refuting atheists, but they cause more harm in criticizing our own scholars, for example, from, from time to time, you know? But when I see them against atheists, I think, Subhanallah, I could never do what they're doing. Like the ability to face them and the stamina is sensational, mashallah. And I can appreciate their qualities there, even if I don't appreciate their qualities on these other
0: You're gonna see one of the brothers on the way
1: out. Inshallah, <laughs> but, 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 but one of the things that, but one of the things that the reason why I mentioned that, is that the argument that's being presented is that yes, people's hearts are with Islam, but Saudi Arabia is weak. And bin Salman is trying to make Saudi Arabia strong. Yes. He's trying to make Saudi Arabia economically strong. He's trying to less make Saudi- Less oil
0: dependent. Less, less, less oil, oil dependent,
1: diversification. He wants to stand up to the Americans and he's already done it with Biden in terms of with the gas prices or the like. He's, pop- he's popular amongst the NBC generation,
0: 18 to 35 year olds. That's the generation he's kind of from. Exactly. He's appealing to people who already support him.
1: And there was already a strict interpretation of Islam and people should be able to freely choose Islam as well. Yes. And also Mohammed bin Salman is providing and he has a vision and he's ambitious and the like. And, and- all. And he's not different to any other
0: Arab despot who who, who, who cracks exactly. down on dissent. He's nothing like any different to his predecessors, his
1: forefathers. And it's your no. Ikhwani leanings that are criticising bin yeah. Salman and, yeah. and you have a vendetta against Saudi Arabia and the like. I, I appreciate all of that. Yeah, Erdogan does the same. He cracks down on dissent. He's got teachers, lecturers, everyone in prison. Why yes, bin, bin Salman? And bin Salman. Salman is making Saudi Arabia great and the economy is already starting to pick yes. up. Uh, although the latest figures don't suggest that. But People the, are becoming Muslim
0: because they're coming here for the belly dancing. They're leaving Muslim. Exactly. They're coming for the raving and the bottom in the UFC, they leaving Muslim. It's an
1: opportunity, a golden opportunity in Jeddah or the like, okay, let's suppose we go with that. With all that. of that. Well, let's go, we go all of that. And let's suppose that Bin Salman makes Saudi Arabia economically prosperous and powerful. Then open the Quran and go to Surah Hud. And look how Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala describes the people of Thamud and the people of Aad. Or for example, Allah in another surah describes describes all of these civilizations, not as poor, weak civilizations, as powerful, thriving, economically prosperous. People who could not be shafted from their territory. These were people who were able to dictate their fate, dictate their future. The exact goal that people are saying Bin Salman is trying to achieve. For the cause of Islam and the Muslim world? Bin Salman, they're saying he's doing it for the cause of Islam and the Muslim world or, or like... As in your critics would
0: say that? Your critics would say, just because he's not doing it according to your interpretation That's of fine. doing Izzat is to Islam.
1: That's fine. He's doing stuff that previous, even pre-modern rulers have done. That's fine. Allah describes these people who Do economically this. powerful, prosperous and the like. But they were un-Islamic in their practices. They were unjust. They were hard on people. When the prophets go to them, when you look at what Shu'aib, for example, says to the people of Median, he doesn't tell them, why do you not believe in Allah? He tells them, why do you cheat people in your balance? When uh, when Hud goes to his people, he tells them, why do you guys oppress one another? When Lut goes to his people, he says, why do you approach the men and neglect your women? If you notice, every prophet has a specific issue that they're addressing alongside La ilaha illallah and salih Rasulullah or Hud Rasulullah. There's Tawheed and then there's the societal core, societal that, core uh, issue The that, societal core issue that he's trying, that there's a corruption of society that they are trying to rectify. And the prophets we, and are... that you t- deviate from the Tawheed of Allah and, de- and these are societies that believed in Allah as a concept, but had deviated from how to worship Allah subhanahu Subh'ana wa ta'ala. Absolutely. So they didn't deny the existence of Allah. They just denied the manner in which they were worshiping Allah. They created idols or the like. And then the prophets would come and try to address that. All of their faith. The reason why Prophet says the Surah of Uhud has given me white hairs, is because each of these people, Allah destroys them one by one. Their economy doesn't rescue them. Their prosperity doesn't rescue them. Their power doesn't rescue them. Their armies don't rescue them. Their advanced technology doesn't rescue them. Their superiority over the other people doesn't rescue them. Allah destroys them. Why? Because at the very crux of their prosperity is injustice. At the crux of their prosperity is oppression. Yeah, put set aside the Vision 2030 and the raves and the like. Is Bin Salman going to build a nation where he executes somebody who has a following of 10 people on Twitter because of a tweet that Christians criticizes the regime. Is Bin Salman going to build a prosperous regime where the judiciary passes laws? And he goes on Fox News and says, I believe our laws are backwards and they need changing. Talking about the Sharia of mm. Allah, Muhammad Rasulullah. Is, is, is Saudi Arabia going to prosper when it's trying to divorce the Islamic identity from its identity in changing the year of the establishment of the kingdom from 1744, when they shook Muhammad Abdul Wahab. It does, the point here is not Muhammad Al Wahab. The point is the terms of the pact. The Saudis have always said, and King Salman said it once in a majlis in 2008, King Salman said, people say that we are a, a state built on tribalism, but we are a state built on a pact that was signed between Muhammad al-Saud and Muhammad al-Wahhab, which is to make Sharia supreme in this land. King Abdul Aziz in Mina in the uh, 1940s, the people they came to him, and he was addressing me. He said, "People say that we are Wahhabia, but we are not Wahhabia. We are conservative Muslims committed to upholding Islam and and, 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 and the Quran. Whether they did so or not is not the point here. The point is that every Saudi said that, that was our the claim. That, that was the claim. Our identity is not a tribal one. It's, an it's not Al Saud. It's Islam. An interesting story for those who want to read the book Muhammad Asad wrote to Mecca, a book that transformed. Can I a quick go quick counter for that once you're done? The, the story." When King Abdul Aziz wanted to keep the tribes appeased, they agreed to support him on the basis you uphold Quran and Sunnah. When the telephone was introduced, a lot of the Bedouins believed the telephones were the Shri- jinn, and yeah. that King Abdulaziz was working yeah. with the jinn, and they nearly caused the revolt. Some of them began to arm themselves because they believed that King Abdulaziz was going against Islam. It shows you that the social contract was built on the idea of Islam. King Abdulaziz managed to fend it off by mm. getting somebody to read Quran on the other side. But the point is that when you look at Saudi Arabia, it's not just about the raves or the like; it's the idea of displacing Islam as a center of identity. So my point here, going back to Surah but the brother is, in
0: question would say that that is exactly the type of Islam that needs reforming. And others would say that it is exactly that type of rigid interpretation, which has also caused intra Muslim problems beyond Saudi Arabia, is exactly that type of Salafism that needs addressing and reforming. It is not Islam. Okay, let's. You said uh, it in your own words. You said it's not. How they how the believing in Quran and Sunnah manifested is the
1: fact that they believe that that's that true. Was but I want to represent the brother properly because you've misrepresented him. And I'll and I tell you why. First of all, going back to the point of Hood, so the idea of economy and prosperity will lead to the promotion of Islam. Allah destroys the people who build a nation based on oppression. Ibn Taymiyyah says, and I'll repeat it Allah will preserve an un an, an Islamic state that is just but will not allow Islam. To exist with I mean, oppression. Allah oppression, won't yeah. tolerate his name being associated with what oppression. Did so what you misrepresented was <laughs> what you misrepresented was that he argued that the brand of Salafism that bin Salman is rebranding the Salafism and he's trying to rebrand that Salafism. And what's wrong with that? No, he's trying to reform aspects of that, not Islam. That's fine. But in the same breath, he also argued that the raves and the parties and the like were also part of his economic vision and within the framework of yes. performing that. Yes. That is rejected Jumlatin wa Like That's not the way that you reform the Salafism. What I will say is this. Personally, and I think many Muslims, and I would argue even the majority of Muslims, take issue with the interpretation of Islam in Saudi Arabia. I think it's been no secret. We always have the debate every single year about the interpretation of Saudi Arabia uh, with regards to Islam. In many ways, I understand why they interpret it that way. I think their interpretation aligns very closely with the rigid life of the Bedouin, which I think Islam adapted to the way, their yep, way of life. Absolutely. But regardless of that, I argue that the, it should be reformed, but reformed within the framework of Islam, not within the framework of Iggy Azalea. A- why
0: is he any different to his forefathers? King Abdullah... King Salman and others, the, the, so many of his forefathers, they cracked down on dissent, they put ulama in prison, um, they carried out many, uh, so there they they, they, they were people who enacted injustice, sided with the Kufar against the believers, invited the disbelievers to kill Muslims from the land and all sorts. Why is Mohammed bin Salman any different to any other Arab or Muslim ruler who um, is a despot, uh, cracks down on dissent, uh, has uh, oppressive elements in, in, in their regime? Why is bin Salman different, Sami?
1: First of all, I'll answer the question, even if I reject the premise of it. I reject the premise from it on the basis always that- Always
0: rejected my premise. I, like I know, I know. The but the reason point. I
1: reject the premise is that bin Salman should not be analyzed in the context of those who came before him. It should be analyzed in terms of his actions that he's actually doing now. Tilka ummatun qad laha ma wa maktasabtum. Allah says, this is an ummah that went before you to them what they earned and to you what you earned. Why I, I, so, why I look so, at bin Salman in terms of what he's doing. Why are
0: you so scathing against him and not against Erdogan? King,
1: King Abdullah never funded somebody twerking on stage in Riyadh. Bin Salman, uh, uh, King Faisal never funded a bikini beach in Jeddah. We're talking about government-funded initiatives here, by the way, yes. just to make it clear. We're yeah. not talking about the opening up of the private sector, which some ulama would argue, even if I think- so, Complexes, hotels, hotels areas- Where they would Muslims. say, if it's a private, don't areas. get involved, it's yes. nothing to yes. do with it. They're yes. not doing that. We're talking about government-funded. We're talking about Turki Al-Sheikh, the head of the General Entertainment Authority, the industry, inviting yep. them on government money, on the Hajj money and Umrah money, inviting her to Saudi Arabia, or inviting these models and OnlyFans models to Saudi Arabia to perform in front of the Saudis Buster as part, of Vision, 20, carry, as part of Vision 2030 to open up Saudi Arabia. And you're trying to say it with a straight face. I imagine those who are who are, who are watching <laughs> us are thinking, am I watching a joke? Are they seriously talking about OnlyFans coming to Saudi Arabia? And the reason they are cringing at that dilly cause you're asking me to answer it in, in, in an objective way. The reason you're cringing and the viewer is cringing at the moment is because they cannot believe that the land of mecca and medina in jeddah less than 100 kilometers away these actors are performing and the like the reason you cringe that my analogy of the prophet muhammad وسلم, mm-hmm. again may forgive me the reason you cringe when i said oh i've prepared belly dance the other side of medina is because immediately the muslim seizes up with the muscles A'udhu billah. this is not what the state that upholds quran and sunnah upholds Does. so when you say reforming islam yakhi, the, we're not even talking about that at the moment. Let's talk about the way he's reforming it because the fact that you cringe, the Prophet was not preaching a Salafist Islam. He was not preaching any type of Islam. He was preaching Islam as it is. He was preaching the perfect form of Islam and you still cringed when I said to you, there are belly dancers on the other side of Medina, do your Sunnah over here and go and watch them later on. You're, you cringe at that because you think it is nothing in Islam, nothing in Islam that justifies an Islamic authority bringing somebody to twerk on the other side of the city and arguing and saying, at least people are going to Mecca and Medina, at least people are going to the Masajid. What does it matter if I bring somebody to twerk? But you, is he saying that though? Ukraine, no, that's what bin Salman's reforms are. No. I'm, now, now, now I'm not talking about the brother anymore. Okay. Now I'm talking about the reforms and those who argue that bin Salman is reforming Salafism or the like. The second point that is worth noting is when we look at how do you reform these ideas? How do you reform? You reform them, you reform them through education and dialogue. Let me give you an example. Man goes to the prophet, uh, man goes to to Umar al-Khattab and says, I want to divorce my wife because I hate her. And Umar al-Khattab turns around in front of the streets and he goes, look at these men of our generation. She gives him her body. She gives him children. She sacrifices her beauty. She looks after him. And then he suddenly gets bored of her and he wants to throw away. Well, I shame on you men. And suddenly the man feels ashamed and he stays. He protects the institution of marriage through that dialogue, through that engagement. But the point here being is that Islam, and this is where I think sometimes that my criticism of Salafism is, in that Islam, in and of itself, is an empowering religion in that everybody is tasked with Amr bin Maruf and Nihil al Munkar. We have no intercessor with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We don't have priests to tell us how to get close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's why when an ordinary person says ittaqillah, we don't automatically tell the person to be quiet. We want to hear first why he's telling us ittaqillah because we are. Knowledge acknowledge that Allah has given him agency and capacity regardless of his status to be able to tell, tell us me. Ittaqillah. And the proof is that when Herakl, the Roman emperor, or I don't know the English version of it, but Herak- or heraclius Heraclis, I think, Heraclis. Heraclis. when Heraklius says to Abu Sufyan, who are the people who, who follow, follow the him? Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? He port. said, it's the lowest of our society. <laughs> they are the ones who are saying Ittaqillah. The point here being is that and he said, those are the people that followed the Prophet. Those are the people who follow the Prophet. And that's why Islam yeah. self-regulates itself. When we say that we criticize Salafism or we criticize the al-Georgia in Saudi Arabia, what we are criticizing is we're saying we should move it within the framework of Islam to something that is more mainstream within the framework of Islam. What bin Salman is doing is taking it completely out of the framework of Islam and saying, I'm going to deal with Salafism by letting people enjoy the pleasures of the flesh, by letting people enjoy the race, by by letting people enjoy things that we consider to be un-Islamic, and instead of facilitating a debate about how to move the goalpost of Islam within the framework of Islam, I'm going to imprison the very scholars who might be able to advocate and help me advocate for the shift. People say the scholars might not be able to do it, but I tell you honestly, and this is heartbreaking for me, because I used to listen to him on a regular basis and I loved listening to him as a young person, Sheikh Salah al-Ghamsi. Sheikh Salah al-Ghamsi was lovely to listen to as Imam of Masjid Quba, but after being being punished for his tweet where he called for the release of prisoners. He now celebrates bin Salman from the rooftops. Ayyad al-Garni celebrates from the rooftops bin Salman as a result of the pressure that bin Salman has put. In other words, bin Salman is not facilitating, and this is where I, I, I push back on the premise, he's not facilitating a dialogue on the nature of Islam in Saudi Arabia. He's facilitating a dialogue on the restriction of the influence of Islam in Saudi Arabia. He's not arguing for a reformation in terms of how we interpret Islam. He's arguing for the containing of Islam within Mecca and Medina because then you will be happy at least to see the Haramain, while the rest of Saudi Arabia where there's no longer any broadcast of Taraweeh prayers, where the volumes now are significantly depleted with regards to Adhan, where Quran is now banned in terms of using loudspeakers to recite the Quran. Bin Salman is saying, I'm not getting rid of Islam, I'm just limiting where it is. And this is where I ask every Muslim, Yadili if the Prophet wasallam, had turned up to Medina and then took over Mecca, and then said to his Sahaba, no need for da'wah after this, you have Mecca and Medina. Astaghfirullah, may Allah forgive me and may the forgive mm-hmm. me. But I'm, I'm doing this to give the an analogy because the, the, you inc- be Muslim today, the, the incredulous nature, if the Prophet had said to them, Khalas, Sharia and Islam will only apply to Mecca and Medina. But on the coast, hundred miles or, or, or fifty Don't kilometers do away. Don't do it! Don't do it! Don't. Do or fifty it. 50 kilometers Don't away. I'm preparing something else.
0: Okay, just something
1: else. I'm preparing something else. But but you see how horrific it sounds for anybody who believes in Laila Rasulullah. And that's what Bin Salman is arguing. In that, yes, you can go to Mecca, yes, you can go to Medina. But I want the mosques outside Mecca, Medina to be quiet. I want to ramp up the volume of the raves. I want that to be all over TikTok and social media. Isn't
0: that your interpretation
1: of things? Is he really?
0: Is he? Give, is it really that binary? Is he really saying that I want the the large and the messages outside the haram to be quiet so these other things are made louder and is it really this or that? Is it really this or that? Okay,
1: Dili, uh, I, I won't answer the question. Let's just go through. Uh, I, I will not, not very long. Bin Salman comes to power. He stands on top of the Kaaba. He invites Nicki Minaj. Nicki Minaj turns him down. He invites Mariah Carey for the concert. He's desperate for somebody. If it's not Nicki Minaj, who's very raunchy, my second choice is Mariah Carey. Mariah Carey is is less less old school, but she's willing to come. Then in the education curriculum, they used to spend 40 hours or 38 hours in the week. The students used to spend on subjects that were divided into four, Fiqh, Quran, Arabic and the like. Now I'm going to merge them into one session and reduce the hours from 38 to 25 hours. And instead I'm going to use the rest of those hours for subjects of critical thinking. Because I think when they study Fiqh and when they study whatever, they, they're they not doing much critical thinking. And they, how bit shodid, they stay shadi? They stay shadi. So I'm going to reduce the hours. They don't need to study Arabic and Quran and this kind of thing. And even the Quran, some elements of it, I'm going to remove from the education curriculum because I want to normalize ties with Israel and the like. I want to send that particular message. Then I'm going to announce a regulation that the loudspeakers of the volumes of the mosques should be 33% maximum for adhan. And then for the Quran, they should not be used for the recitation of Quran. People on the street shouldn't have to hear the Quran. If you want to hear the Quran, go to the mosque. Why do you need to hear it outside onto the streets? The Juma'a khutbah shouldn't be used for the Juma'a khutbah. Oh, wait, the people outside couldn't hear the khutbah. Okay, allow it for the sermon, but not the Quran. I don't want the Quran to be heard on the streets. Let the khutbah hear, but not the Quran. A village chief comes and protests to the mayor and says to him, We're the only mosque in the village. Surely these rules don't apply to us. People need to hear the adhan. And uh, they say, No, it applies to you as well. But those people won't hear us. It doesn't matter. 33%, that's the law. Even if you're the only... Uh, mes- then he says, you know, those uh, those uh, imams, when you watch on social media from the mosque in Riyadh or the mosque in Damam or, or these other imams that we discover on social media or the like, none of these imams may broadcast the Tarawih prayers. I don't want people enjoying their, their voice in, in Riyadh and whatever. Besides, it's not even the Sunnah. Who broadcasts uh, prayers anyway and the like? Oh, there's a backlash over Mecca and Medina. Khalas, leave an exception for Mecca and Medina given that there's people like Dili and Sami, they want to watch this, this, this Quran channel, but everywhere else in Riyadh and then Quba and uh, these places Quba, where we, where we discovered Muhammad Ayyub and the like silence, no TikTok, no Facebook, don't broadcast the beautiful recitation of the Quran that I listen to when I'm walking to work and an area might come about that makes me reconcile with my wife or makes me reconcile. I don't, I don't want these beautiful voices here. Now Islam should be in the personal space. It doesn't need to be so public. Why does it need to be on social media? Why should it be outside of the mosque? So you look at all of these Various different regulations that are taking place. I ask you when you look at these these regulations in whole, when you look at the Ramadan rules, for example, where it says, for example, no books may be approved except by the Ministry of Islamic Affairs, that sounds all very good. It sounds logical. It sounds fantastic. There was an Imam in America who responded to me and said, It's Sunnah. I don't see anything wrong. Then look at its implementation. An Imam criticizes the raves by Turkey Al Sheikh. Sacked. An Imam criticized another rave. Sacked. An Imam criticized the general entertainment policy saying that it's ruining the youth of Saudi Arabia. Sacked. These are, you can't. I can see these in the mosques. The, the rule means you can't say these in the mosques. When it says that keep the qunut short, keep the dua short, what that means is don't spend so long on the Palestine issue, don't. Because Trump is Safir al salam as Sudei said in the Mecca. Trump is the ambassador of peace, we need to, etc. But it's okay because Dili Hussein, not you Dili, but, but it's okay because other imams are coming out and saying, it's sunnah, I don't see anything wrong with this. When it says don't bring your kids, for example, for iftar in the mosque, why should kids be there in the first place for taraweeh? They make noise and the like. Whereas the Turks on the one, hand are saying that a mosque that doesn't have kids fear for the future of the ummah why do you so. want to restrict kids because they disturb the worshipers the people before you never did this and kids were always at the prophet وسلم, and this is a response to those who said it's sunnah the prophet Muhammad وسلم, we have a hadith where he makes sajda and, and you know, al-Husayn and Hassan. Hassan jump on his back and he doesn't get up from the sajda until Hassan Hussein have got off his back because he doesn't want to disturb them while they're playing on his back while he's in sujood. The fact it's a hadith means people saw him and they saw him do it in the mosque. They saw him do it in Medina, which means the kids were playing in Medina. They were disturbing the prayer. They say, kids, I don't want them to disturb my prayer. They disturbed the Prophet Muhammad and instead of telling them, get out of the mosque and ban them from coming to the mosque, he said to them, let them play on top. And this is the reason why I say Bin Salman is not coming out and saying, I'm getting rid of Islam. Bin Salman is doing with, with these, with, and I got a lot of backlash on, on, the, on, the, on the Ramadan rules. Sorry to be. And then you see, for example, how it's being implemented. And that's what, and, and I think part of the reason is this. And this is where <coughs> I have a lot of sympathy for the brother who responded to me. And may Allah reward a lot of his work. He's done some fantastic work. I, mean, I understand because I speak to many of my Pakistani brothers. And they're like, no, no, surely not the Holy Land. No, 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 it can't be happening in the Holy Land. Standard. No, 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 no way. I, I just went to Umar and, and I prayed behind, you know, Shuraim now has resigned. People say, because he's not happy with what's mm-hmm. happening. Another Imam has recently been sacked. An Imam in 2019 was put in prison because he gave a khutbah denouncing Turkey Al-Sheikh. But they say, no, 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 please. I want to see the Kaaba and Medina. And Imam once said to me, said to me, sent me a private message. Where one of the most famous of, and I won't mention his name. Sent me a message saying to me, Sami, barakallah for what you've done. But I want to go to Umrah and Hajj. I can't come out in support of 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 what's what, what you're saying in that kind. That's why I ask the Muslims when you take it in terms of what's happening. The question here is this: Should I wait until Bin Salman bans the Tarawih prayers? In and by the way, I have it on very good authority, and nobody would believe me if I say this. But I say anyway, I have it very good authority that the original draft of the banning of the broadcast of Tarawih prayers included Mecca and Medina and that Bin Salman got cold feet That's at the, the, the last Muslim minute. Claim, and that the reason the Haramein took 48 hours, took 48 hours to deny that they would be included in the ban was because the Saudis were monitoring the reaction and the backlash first. And because there was the, a sizable backlash. The, because the sizable backlash, they decided, you know what, we'll leave it for all the other mosques. Because the Muslims are so frightened that the prospect of Mecca and Medina, they'll forget that we've banned it all over Saudi Arabia. Think about it, Delhi in one in, in less than 24 hours bin salman turned off the loudspeakers for quran permanently in all of saudi arabia all of the Bilad al-Haram ash-sharifain except mecca and medina and you know what the muslims did we breathed a sigh of relief because it wasn't mecca and medina. At least it was medina at least it wasn't mecca medina and that's why i think sometimes honestly it literally was a sigh and that's why when you look at even now Now look at normalization of ties. When Bin Salman calls Israel the occupier again, he's doing it because you, Dili, are hosting these interviews. Because Muhammad Jalal is hosting the interviews. Because the people online, the Palestinians, are loudly shouting their cause. Because the Pakistanis are retweeting and sharing. Because the Bengalis are taking to the streets. And Bin Salman is like, this is making me uncomfortable. I don't want to be seen on the wrong side of history. I'm going to uh, declare them an occupation force. But I'll leave enough. I'll let the Saudi bots criticize Palestinians. Saudi bots are criticizing Palestinians while the official statement is pro-Israel. That way, if the Palestinians win, I show the official statement. If the Palestinians lose, the bots. The, the, the bots, Netanyahu. I was always with you. Look, yeah. I, I gave yeah. the bots, which is why I thought it was very interesting. And this is something I didn't say on the Thinking Muslim podcast because it hadn't happened yet. But the one thing that's very interesting is that Erdogan's tweet, the official account about his conversation with Bin Salman. There's a paragraph which is very strange. We talked about the need for constructive statements to, I don't know if it's support Palestine or for de-escalation. The reason that's interesting because it suggests that maybe Erdogan said to Bin Salman, you need to be more firmer in your statements in what you're saying. And then Bin Salman of course called the Iranians as well just before I entered here to talk, it's, it, almost to say, look, I'm willing to set aside my differences for the sake of Palestine, preparing the PR just in case because public opinion matters. And the reason I mention all of that is because Dili now asked me the question, at what point, therefore, should I oppose bin Salman's reforms? Should I wait until he bans the tarawih praise and Mecca in the broadcast? Should I wait until he reduces the volumes in the Harameen? Should I wait until he imposes Imams who will start making dua celebrating Turkey Al-Sheikh? Should I wait until Islam, until the mosques start getting shut down in, Saudi, in the rest of Saudi Arabia or perhaps they start getting more monitored? Should I wait until Ramadan practices are even more restricted? At what point should the Ummah turn around and say, Ya yeah, bin Salman, ittaqillah"? What are you doing trying to invite Nicki Minaj? What what are you doing inviting Haifa Wahbi? What are you doing inviting Sofia Vergara to Riyadh to, to strut her stuff in a Riyadh advert or the like? At what point Dilly and I asked the viewers, what point do you want me? To turn around and say, "Yeah, bin Salman, yeah, Ummah, something is happening here that is dangerous, and we need to start getting a grip on it." And I think that's the question that should be asked. And that, okay, the brother, I appreciate it. He's worried that he said it. I think it was related to me that he said. I haven't listened to the full hour and a half, but but it was related to me that he said that I am damaging the stability of the country. The last, and I've yeah. had phone calls like that. But Ibn Khaldun. He asked another question. But just on this point, but Ibn Khaldun said oppression heralds the end of a dynasty. And here's why he said it. He didn't say it as a theoretical thing. He said, it because what happens is when the state starts appropriating property, when it starts oppressing its people, what happens is that people start to leave the country. When they start leaving, the cities start to lose their population, which means the market shrink, which means you have a brain drain, which means you're unable to achieve the very prosperity that you were set out to achieve in the first place. Because your people are gone. Because your people are gone. So when Allah says justice, He's not saying justice because it's a fancy concept. He's saying it because the opposite leads to the the destruction of a state. So when they say I'm harming the stability, here's the question, am I harming the stability for calling out the oppression or is the one doing the oppressing and driving people outside of Arabia and putting them in prison, is he the one harming the state? Given that now you see many Saudis leaving Saudi Arabia and going abroad, not because, they don't like the raves. Maybe some of them like the raves, but they don't want to be suffocated in Saudi Arabia. They want the freedom to be able to speak without going to prison without the black Jeep rolling up in front of their house. And that's why I think that we should put this into context. Bin Salman has been in power seven years. Every year he introduces a new legislation. What, how long do you want me to wait before I say to people at
0: Final question to wrap up the podcast. And it was one that was raised by the brother. And I, f- I found some validity in this question. That is at whose behest? For whose sake is he doing this? We would say, is he, does b- the Biden administration really need placating? Does he really need convincing and pleasing? One would argue that the American administration, uh, one after the other, have always been pleased with a particular type of Islam in Saudi Arabia. In fact, they would argue that that brand of Islam actually protects American hegemony in the region. So, who, at whose behest is he doing all of this? Is it for Biden? Is it for himself? Who's 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 he doing this all this to for? To be honest, if we were to take everything that you've said, even those whom disagree with you, if we were to take some, most, or all of what you said to be true in terms of those criticisms, in terms of those reformation,s right, and the danger that it imposes um, to Islam and Muslims in the way that we've discussed it, who at whose behest? Who's he trying to please? Saudi
1: Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. One thing. Let, let's let's start with this. If I were to ask you, Dili, and you don't need to answer, I'll answer on your behalf because I know your answer. If I was to ask you, what is a model system of prosperity in the Muslim world? You will give me Islamic examples. You will give me through history and you will mention Sahaba, you will mention Khulafa, you will mention examples. Bin Salman in every documentary that he talks about what his vision 2030 should looks like, he says Miami. He said, it looks like America. I want people that when they leave, like in Miami, they have entertainment on their right side and they go to work and then they go home. Everything, all the amenities are provided. In which media has he, ne- he said this? He said it in his documentary, the Neom documentary. Okay, it's, okay. it's it's on the official okay. accounts. It's not like it's a it's a secret thing. It's very public. So he says, I wanted to look at Miami. Never has he said, I wanted to look like Shanghai. Never has he said, I wanted to look like Moscow. Never has he said, I wanted to look like Paris. Or Singapore. Never has he said, I want to look like Singapore. Never has he said London. Every single example My- he gives is an American example. Even when his ties with Biden, like you were saying are very strained. He was still talking about the Americans. The reason that Chinese have not rushed to embrace Saudi Arabia. It's because the Chinese know that Bin Salman is still using them as like somebody who is flirting to have an affair in the relationship, and they, know, and they know that he's only going to antagonize the Americans, which is why the Americans didn't react when Saudi joined BRICS. They weren't really interested because the Americans, they know. One, most of the BRICS countries are allies of America in the first place, and Biden Absolutely. took a photo with him at G20, but they didn't see it as a threat. They saw it as a lashing out. And Saudi Arabia, when it responded to BRICS, the UAE said, we'll join. Saudi said, we'll revise the, the invitation and we'll see where it goes. To say to the Americans, really don't want to be joining BRICS and I don't want to go to China. I want to sit with you. I want you. you. When he gives his first major interview, he doesn't give his first major interview to CGTN. He doesn't give it to Al Jazeera with whom he has good terms now with the Qataris. Al Jazeera has been uh, really toning down its coverage. He gives it to To Fox Fox News. News. He gave it to Fox News because who does he want to talk to? Who is Vision 2030 supposed to be geared to? It's not supposed to be geared to, you know, the, 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 the five pillars or the thinking Muslim or the like. It's geared towards a very particular American audience or the like. Suggesting that for Mohammed bin Salman, the future of Saudi Arabia looks like what? It doesn't look like Andalusia. It doesn't look like the examples that you dream of. It doesn't look like examples I dream. Of. It doesn't look like Shanghai. It doesn't look, it looks like Miami. It looks like America. That's what Bin Salman aspires in order for it to look like. And this is by his own words. So when you say to me at whose behest, it's not necessarily about whose behest. He's convinced this is what it should look like. Moreover, you, it's true that Bin Salman has exerted strategic autonomy or the like with regards to Biden. But you think about the normalization talks and normalization agreements. What is Bin Salman asking for in exchange for betraying the Palestinians? He's He's asking for the Americans to protect him. Protect him from what? Protect him from the rockets that Iranian proxies have been firing into Saudi Arabia. You'll remember 2019. I think it's 2019. Again, people forgive me. It's been a rough few days.
0: The the Houthi attacks.
1: The Houthi attacks on on Abqaiq. The oil facility. The Saudis were convinced the Americans would react. They were convinced the Americans would come in. And they didn't. The Americans did nothing. And the Saudis were livid. They said this, this suddenly, all the think tanks in Saudi were like, we need to look for alternatives now because now the Americans aren't protecting us.
0: Because there is truth in the fact that the entire, in the most of the security of the Saudi state is based on American security. Patriot
1: missiles and the Patriot missiles couldn't shoot down the homemade Houthi drones that went in and shot. When you look at the way the Houthis fired a missile over Jeddah when Formula One was taking place like, when you look at the way the Iraq militias, the pro-Iran Iraq militias shot a rocket at the Royal Palace itself, you can see that when, it looks at when, it, when you see that Bin Salman in the normalization talks, what is he asking for? He's asking for American protection against Iran, American technology for nuclear technology. I ask you, you're telling me at whose behest is Saudi Arabia becoming strong? Saudi Arabia is still outsourcing its security. It can't rely on its own army. It's asking, Biden, protect me. Biden, give me the technology. Biden, help me with Vision 2030. Invest in Vision 2030. It's not about at whose behest. It's about Bin Salman's vision. I agree with the brother when he says that Bin Salman has agency. Bin Salman is using that agency to look like America is using that agency to get close to America. For Bin Salman, think about it. How many millions go to Hajj, go to Saudi Arabia from Pakistan, Bangladesh, Malaysia? So I ask you, Dilly, have you even seen one advert for the Muslim world come to Saudi Arabia and enjoy Vision 2030? None. It's all in the Western capitals. It's all in America. The future of Saudi Arabia is, is not at the on? heart of the Ummah the way Imran Khan was trying to position. The all future the of Saudi Arabia is protected by the Americans against Muslim countries, against Iran, against the light. So I ask. Ask you, you say at whose behest, and let's put this back into the context of the de Islamization. When you're a foreigner, people say yes, Wahhabism supported the Americans with like, I think that's a very lazy, lazy approach to Saudi US relations. I've never seen a US official who's argued this. US officials always say that King Faisal was a thorn in our side, King Khalid was frustrating, King Fahd was annoying, King Abdullah, we bullied him after 9 11 because he was terrified we'd invade him. And the Qataris leaked that they were ready to help the Americans invade Saudi Arabia and split it into five separate States, which is why King Abdullah in Abdul Aziz memoirs, Abdul Aziz is the guy who delivered Abdullah to the kingship, his chief advisor. He said when the journalist came to promote the Arab peace initiative, when King Abdullah was backtracking after 9-11, King Abdullah said, they said to him, what's your what's your points for the peace initiative? Abdullah took the piece of paper, Allah King Abdullah, he was crown prince at the time. He said, here's the paper, write whatever you want and go and publish it in the American press. In other words, just get them off my back. I think it's very lazy when people talk about Wahhabism helped whatever, even though I'm not fond of the ideology at all. I think the reality is this. Bin Salman has agency, yes. He has strategic autonomy, yes. Saudi has power, yes. Does it have capabilities, yes. How is Bin Salman deploying it? Just look at the terms of normalization of ties. It's all about Americans, please protect me. Americans, please invest in me. And that's why I ask you when you look at Vision 2030 and what's happening in Saudi Arabia, do you see a call to the Muslim world or a call to the West? These reformations, do they appeal to the Muslim world or do they appeal to the West? And when you look at that, the overwhelming evidence in front of you, I think people need to get their heads heads out of the sands. Mohammed bin Salman is not here to reform Islam. He's here to restrict it and constrain it. And he's hoping that Dili Hussein, he's hoping that Samuel Hamdi, he's hoping that Muhammad Jalal, he's hoping that all these other brothers who are talking online will say brothers. Don't harm the stability of Saudi Arabia. You have Mecca and Medina. Just don't visit the Iggy if you don't want to go see her. Don't go to the concerts if you don't want to go see her. Because the Prophet Muhammad I won't use the example again. I, I, oh, I, I, can't it. Do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. The, I can't do it to the honor of Prophet But the point is, I've given examples and you're cringing at them because the Muslim in his heart and here's why it's causing controversy. It's not because Sami al-Hamdi is talking about it. It's because all the Muslims when they hear it, I didn't I didn't have a sizable following when I started talking about it. It's because when they hear it they think oh my goodness a, a rave in Riyadh. They're not reacting that I said that he's the Dima. they're like a rave in Riyadh what? This reached in Riyadh what? What? The lyrics, Lord your prophets bow down to the goddess. What? Everybody's going what? But why are they going what? Because their fitrah is screaming that there is something so horribly wrong with what's happening in Vision 2030 and I finished on this point Dili. And that's why I think the Quran is timeless. People who argue that this process brings prosperity and strength, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala tells you in the Quran that people stronger than you, people more prosperous than you, Allah destroyed them in an instant because they left his deen and because they didn't uphold the justice that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala demands. So, the final sentence that's worth saying is this It's not about me whether I have a vendetta on Saudi Arabia. There's a dangerous storm coming. There's a fire that is taking place. There's a horrible danger to the Islamic identity in Saudi Arabia. Allah will protect it. I have no doubt about that whatsoever, but Allah will protect it through us, through the vehicles that he uses on the ground. And Bin Salman should be called out. And those who are worried about stability of Saudi Arabia, remember, Allah never preserves an oppressed state. Allah never preserves an unjust state. He never preserves an oppressive state. Allah never preserves injustice. The greatest threat to stability is always injustice. And the way we preserve stability is being the Ummah that calls Bin. That's we are self-regulating religion, and the final I, I promise this is the final point. People often say, people often say that who are you to criticize bin Salman or who are we? Bin Salman knows things that we don't know. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if you Obey O oh, oh you who believe, obey Allah the prophet and those who rule on you. on you. People love to focus on this first half but not the second half. The second half says, but when you dispute with one another, when the people dispute with the ruler, when the people are upset with the ruler, when the people see that the ruler is transgressing, Allah says, Go back to Allah and Rasul, not, not to the leader, go back to Allah and, and the Prophet messenger. has said, and decide between that. In other words, you always decide in favor of the people, not in, in, in favor of the ruler. And the fin- and والله, final point, and the final point is this. That when people talk about, don't shout loudly at the rulers or the like. Abu Bakr al anhu when he stood up after he took the khilafa, he said, support me in what I do, what is right. Wa resist me. Not correct, he says, resist me, qawimuni, when I do wrong, resist me in, in, if, if I do wrong. And Umar al-Khattab, likewise, the ahadith we have is of public admonition. Khalid ibn walid was publicly admonished for transgressing when he was removed from his position as commander-in-chief. Uh, Prophet Muhammad sallam, when Khalid ibn walid transgressed in one of the campaigns, uh, the Prophet in front of everyone said, Allahumma abra'u mimma fa'ala Khalid. I am innocent of what Khalid has done. This was done publicly. So there is a sunnah, there is a precedent for doing these things in public. But what I will say is this, people need to appreciate that there is a storm coming in Saudi Arabia that bin Salman is pushing it and what bin Salman is relying on is not the Americans. You were saying at whose behest, he's not relying uh, on the Americans, he's relying on the ulama. Who argue that we don't want to stability, who argue that I want to go to Umar and I don't want to ruin that for myself, who argue that please, as long as we can go to Mecca and Medina, we're satisfied. And when I gave the example of the Prophet and I won't repeat it, when I gave the example of the Prophet and everybody cringed, and may Allah forgive me for it, the Prophet may forgive me for it, and I will apologize a million times if I ever see him in Jannah, inshallah, may Allah give me that honor to be next to him, both of us, inshallah, and everybody else who's watching. I think that when everybody cringed at the example, and when you're pleading with me, please don't repeat it, you're pleading with me because your fitr is like, Billah, this is, Sami don't repeat it, it's it's so against everything we stand for and we believe in. And that's the greatest testament, Dili, to what Bin Salman, to the to the tragedy of what's unfolding in Saudi Arabia under Bin Salman.
0: Sami, for your time, for your conversation, for your contribution, may Allah bless you and preserve Amen. you. And forgive us for all our shortcomings. It was an honor having you on. Having you it's an honor bro. to be
1: here with you. Thank you very much, Dili. I appreciate it. Your analogies,
0: deadly, <laughs> <laughs> Your analogies are deadly, bro. Your analogies are deadly, bro. Astaghfirullah. Astaghfirullah. My dear brothers and sisters, I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's episode as much as I did and benefited it uh, from as much as I did. Um, there's a lot to take in. Uh, please do leave a comment, like the video. Remember that you can find this show on all the major audio platforms. If you're watching on YouTube, click subscribe. And until next time, Salaamu <laughs> alaikum warahmatullahi wa